Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Helen Scales. Now, this week, scientists have done an exciting piece of work because they've discovered how viruses actually boost up infection rates. Viruses spread far faster than they ought to. But how does it work? Well, Jeff Smith is a researcher at Imperial College in London, and he and his team have been watching under a microscope vaccinia virus, which is a relative of smallpox. In fact, vaccinia was used to immunise people against smallpox when we eradicated it a number of years back. What they found is they watched this virus infecting monolayers, in other words, layers or plates of cells in a dish under a microscope, was that the virus was spreading far faster, in fact, four times faster than it ought to. Now, traditionally, the way in which virologists thought that viruses spread in this sort of way was that when a cell got infected, first of all, that cell would become a virus factory and pump out lots of viruses onto the adjacent surrounding cells, which would then become infected themselves, and they would then infect their neighbours, and so on and so forth. And you get this plaque, as it's known, growing out radially. But the researchers, with their video clips, showed that, in fact, cells that weren't next door to infected cells were getting infected. In some cases, there were viruses popping up out of cells, many other cells further away. And they wanted to know what was going on and why this virus was spreading so quickly. It turns out that when a cell gets infected by this virus, the virus adds to the surface of the cell two chemical markers. In fact, it turns on two genes. One's called A33 and another one's called A36. And that marks the cell now as infected. And this is cunning because if that infected cell before it's even had a chance to make any more virus, if another virus comes along from elsewhere and tries to infect it, the cell then produces the molecular equivalent of a little spring and it pings the virus back off its surface and bounces it away in the direction of other cells that it can then infect. And the researchers discovered this by using colour-coded viruses and also colour-labelled surface structures on the cell components to work out how this is happening. And it's a structure called actin, which is produced to ping the virus off. And, And it can do this multiple times. The virus can be bounced from one cell to the next cell. So this is an intriguing way in which viruses maximise their rate of spread so they only infect cells that are uninfected, thereby maximising the chance of producing lots of infectious viral progeny and escaping from the immune system. Well, that all sounds like viruses are doing a good job at affecting us. Um, so what's this telling us about how we're going to combat the sort of viruses that, uh, that we suffer from? Yes, very good question. And the point they make in their paper, which is in the journal Science this week, is that the rate at which vaccinia virus, the one they studied, grows, is actually very, very similar to the rate at which other viruses that are important human pathogens, like herpes simplex, the cold sore virus, also grow. So it might be that these other viruses are also using the same trick. So if we work out how they're doing it, that might be the target for a new kind of antiviral, a new way to block virus spread by fooling the virus into thinking cells are all infected because they've all got these markers on the surface that ping the viruses off when in fact the cells remain uninfected. So it could be a new way of tackling all those terrible viruses we suffer from. Well, back now I'm going to step into the plant world because plants get up to all sorts of clever tricks to persuade animals to pay them a visit and pollinate their flowers. Lots of animals are tempted in by delicious smells and the reward of sugary, energy-rich nectar. 
But what if those visiting animals don't just take away their nectar reward, pollinating the plant in the process, but they also leave behind a clutch of hungry, plant-munching offspring? Well, a new study has shown how some plants have come up with an ingenious solution to this problem. They reprogram themselves, it turns out, to attract an alternative pollinator that doesn't produce herbivorous youngsters. Publishing in the journal Current Biology, Ian Baldwin from the Max Planck Institute of Chemical Ecology in Germany and colleagues focus on a species of tobacco plant, Nicotiniana attenuata. And this responds to the spit of hawk moth caterpillars and three days after an infestation begin to produce flowers in the morning instead of at night when the hawk moths are at large. Now, they went out and observed thousands of tobacco plants in the wild and discovered that following an attack of hawk moth caterpillars, the flowers don't open as wide and they produce less sweetly scented nectar as well as changing the time that they opened. And this doesn't seem to bother another type of pollinator, the day-flying hummingbirds, and they begin to arrive and take over the role of chief pollinators. Now, the team also studied a genetically modified uh, version of this tobacco plant that lacks a key hormone called jasminate, and we know that this triggers a range of other plant defence mechanisms. Now, unlike the wild plants, these jasminate-free plants didn't change the timing of their flowering when they had caterpillar spit rubbed into their cut leaves. But they did respond when they were sprayed with the hormones. This was really revealing that key role that jasminate is playing in this chemical pathway between a caterpillar attacking and this change in the flowering times. Do they know what the composition or component of the spit is that's making this happen? They don't yet, no. That would be the next part of the question as to what is it exactly within the spit, but it certainly is the caterpillar spit, something in it, uh, that's doing this. Um, And and, uh, but the big question I think that kind of leads on for this is, well, why on earth do the plants bother attracting moths in the first place? Why not just use these harmless hummingbirds all the time? Well, it seems that despite laying hungry caterpillars, the moths are actually more efficient pollinators and they can be attracted from miles around. Meanwhile, the hummingbirds don't travel as far and when they do visit flowers, they actually tend to lead to more inbreeding uh, than the, the, the moths do. So all in all, the best strategy for these tobacco plants is to use the reliable moth pollinators up until their hungry young come along then it pays to switch off uh, to switch strategies and start attracting hummingbirds instead and i think that's just very clever indeed i wonder what other plants also use the same strategy do we know or is this just nicotine well we don't know yet um i think this is the first time this kind of switching over has been done but plants do undergo lots of extraordinary adaptations to to deal with and almost control animals so i wouldn't be surprised if we find something similar in other plants i should think the scientists who study plant body clocks because plants have body clocks like we do would be very interested in that because it's obviously totally reversing the plant's body clock almost like a jet lag effect um, to make the flowers come out at a totally different time of day which is intriguing thank you for that helen now something that i struggle to do is to find my way around i've got an atrocious sense of direction Uh, my wife's sense of direction is so much better than mine and i'm always getting lost perhaps i don't have in my enterrhinal cortex a very good grid layout of the world around me researchers at ucl this week this is christian dola and his colleagues have proved that humans have in their enterrhinal cortex a grid on which they superimpose their position relative to the world around them, and this is how they navigate. Now, the way they did this was to put people into an MRI scanner, magnetic resonance imaging uh, study, and they watched what happened as the people shown the world through virtual reality headsets navigated around a virtual space, and they were able to follow the patterns of neurological activity. 
and this work was informed by initial studies in rodents. Now, what they did in rats and mice to start with was to put an electrode into the brain, into this bit of the brain, the entorhinal cortex, which if you were to find it on yourself, if you were to stick a finger into your ear and carry on going about a finger's length into your brain, where your fingertip ended up would be roughly where your entorhinal cortex is. What they did was to do that in rats, and they found individual cells there which fire off when the animal is in a certain part of the world. And more specifically, these cells are arranged in a triangular grid pattern. So when the animal moves around, as it crosses over the vertex of a triangle, then that cluster of cells fires off. And so the brain is constantly plotting the position of the animal relative to its environment on this grid, and these cells are marking up where it's going, where it's been, and where it is at the moment. So the researchers want to know, do humans do this? And this MRI study proved that they do. Now, you can't stick electrodes in a human brain, but what you can do is to work out, well, if humans did use the same system, what nerves would become active in the brain in what order? So they built a computer model of how the rodent brain works and used that to simulate what would happen if people were doing this virtual maze and then looked with the MRI scanner to see if those kind of patterns of activity came up, and they did. And so this shows that humans basically move around their environment and find their way about the same way that a rat and a mouse does. So understanding this a bit better informs maybe uh, helping us with diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and other dementing illnesses because those sorts of abilities tend to go and perhaps understanding how they work will help us to remedy them in future. But also it's very important to show that this is how brains actually process spatial information because other memories probably get stored in a very similar way. Do you get virtually lost um, when you're in these, uh, <laughs> in these MRI scanners? It does happen. Well, um, my final piece of news is about a place that's very dear to my heart, the Indian Ocean island of Madagascar. I was there last summer. And it's home to some extraordinary creatures. In fact, 80% of the plants and over 90% of the animals that live there are found nowhere else on the planet. But a big Malagasy mystery is how on earth did all those species get there? And there's been a new study published in the nature, uh, journal Nature um, which has provided some strong evidence backing a theory that the ancient ancestors of Madagascar's mammals drifted there over hundreds of kilometres um, from the African mainland, clinging on to rafts of floating vegetation. And that goes for the most famous uh, Malagasy inhabitants, the lemurs, which are a type of primate just like us, only they're unlike any other primates in the rest of the world. Well, these guys used uh, computer climate models to reconstruct ancient oceans. It was Alison, uh, sorry, Jason Alley from the University of Hong Kong and Matthew Huber from Purdue University in the US. And together they've shown that at around the time that lemurs were thought to have arrived from Madagascar, about 60 million years ago, there was surface ocean currents flowing from northern Mozambique eastwards towards Madagascar. Now, today, those currents flow in the opposite direction, and that's a change that took place gradually as Madagascar drifted northwards to its present location. Now, Ali and Huber found that for three or four weeks every century, these eastward currents were strong enough to propel a log from Mozambique all the way to Madagascar in about a month. Well, wow. <laughs> There you go. So you can imagine that, in fact, a small mammal um, probably, you know, some of these ancestors of the lemurs were quite small, um, could feasibly have clung on and survived for that long, perhaps on leaves and insects and things that were also clinging to a log. Um, and it might seem rather unlikely that this would have happened, you know, three or four weeks every century, but genetic studies suggest that it would only have needed to have about a dozen colonisation events to bring all the mammal ancestors to Madagascar, not just lemurs, but carnivores, rodents and a crazy group of animals called the tenrecs, which have to be seen to be believed. Go and check them out. Um, so over the course of 
tens of millions of years, that's actually becomes highly possible to have happened. Um, and this goes against previous theories that uh, Madagascar's animals walked across um, a- an ancient land bridge uh, from mainland Africa. And that doesn't really work, really, because um, why didn't other things walk across, like antelopes and elephants, which we don't see in Madagascar? So it's really, it's just a very interesting study in ho- showing us how some of Madagascar's amazing wildlife evolved. And it goes to show us how biology can tell us a lot about the geology on Earth. Thank you, Helen. Just goes to show, uh, clinging to a log, very important for human and perhaps other animal evolution. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.